Recorded live in Manhattan's East Village at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, this is The Poetry Project. Hi everybody, it is like a homecoming, I think. Um, Welcome Jennifer Moxley, studied literature and writing at UC San Diego and the University of Rhode Island, received her MFA from Brown University in 1994. She's the author of six books of poetry, most recently The Open Secret, which I'm really looking forward to hearing from tonight. I hope she reads from that. A book of essays and a memoir. Um, In addition, she has translated three books from the French. In 2005, she was granted the Linda Hull Poetry Award from Denver Quarterly, and her poem, Behind the Orbits, was included by Robert Creeley in the Best American Poetry 2002. She's a professor of poetry and poetics at the University of Maine. And um, Jennifer Moxley is a real poet in all senses, and she lovingly enacts that definition on so many levels. Um, as most of you know, in her early work, she recuperated and refigured the labor of the lyric for a whole new generation. And I had the honor of publishing her first book, The Amazing Imagination Verses, which was verses and versus um, oppositional to the dull status quo that was around her. And she um, tellingly dedicated it to her contemporaries. Um, and her influential mimeo come Xerox stapled magazine, The Impercipient, um, took for its epigraph the silent pillow of a generation. Um, she has an amazing new website. I've really been enjoying cruising around it. I recommend you look at it because it has, um, in, in addition to just the resources of all her amazing work, it has a lot of ephemera and um, digital archiving and sort of a, you know daily blogging about her um, takes on the contemporary scene. Um, and I just want, I, I want, Jennifer made it easy to write this introduction because I'm going to quote from her entry about tonight. She said, reading at the project feels kind of like going home for the holidays. The return to a familiar place, familiar or family-like, comes from the Latin familus, meaning not altogether surprisingly servant or even slave. Does anyone remember the Tama Janowitz book, Slaves of New York? It was very 80s. Whenever I go to the project, I expect to run into friends and acquaintances who have been dutifully serving poetry for many years, who also feel like the project is a kind of home. I read there for the first time with Mark McMorris in 1997, the year after my first book came out in 2003, she says. Anselm Berrigan invited me to read with Robert Creeley. I recall a humid torrent of November rain splashing me on the way in, and a woman's cell phone playing Mozart's overture to Le Nozze de Figaro, going off while I read a poem about death. In 2010, I read with Miles Champion, who brought his newborn. I'm looking forward, she says, to Wednesday's reading, to returning once again to this familiar home for lost and wayward poems. And um, in the, I love in the moment in her entry, she said, um, when she launched the site, she said, tongue-in-cheek, too much Moxley. And I think there's never enough Moxley. Please welcome Jennifer Moxley to the Poetry Project. Thank you. I feel like I'm so emotional already because there's so many old friends here and 
right before the reading, people I haven't seen in years, and it's just wonderful. So I wanted to say thank you to everyone for coming out, and to the project for inviting me, and to Leanne for that wonderful introduction. Um, it's really a great honor, and I'm very honored to read with Will. Um, this is just an amazing uh, privilege. It's funny, because um, I just joined Facebook maybe a year and a half ago, after much resisting. And I noticed there's this tick where people are always honored to get things. You know, I'm honored to be invited to this colony or this prize. And I'm always like, this, this rhetoric of honor has to go away. But here I am using it. All right, since Leanne had um, an event here in, about a couple months ago um, celebrating the 25th anniversary of Tender Buttons, and unfortunately I couldn't go to that event, um, so I wanted to start with a poem from the book that she published uh, in 1996, my first book, Imagination Verses, just because I couldn't be there. How's the sound, Douglas? Good, okay. This is a poem called Cell Number 103, and it is, originally it was dedicated to my little brother, um, Fred Moxley, who um, has spent a lot of time in the system, as they say, in prison. But now his name is Marty Wilson. So I have to change it. <laughs> this is dedicated to Marty Wilson. Um, and my publisher, um, Devin Johnston of Flood Books, um, who lives in St. Louis, invited me last year, and he runs a Poet, uh, writers in the prison program. So he took me to this maximum security prison to do a panel with some prisoners there. And I nervously read this poem to them and they, they approved, so I was happy. So this is cell number 103. How many years locked up does it take to create a revolutionary? How many a poet? With our penal system, we shall give to you life, education, punishment, and hope hopelessness and tuberculosis, a haircut and race hatred, organized religion, a personal God, a place to sleep and clothes to wear, fear, slavery, and an alternate economy, drug connections, enemies, allies, and a new body, romantic opportunity, prepared food, allotted time, and something to keep for your memory's permanent damage. the logic of survival. In order to preserve his way of life, Odysseus threaded the necks of 20 faithless servant girls and hung them in his courtyard above the slick blood of their newly slain lovers. His wife was true, but his dog was gone, and that was already too much. Charged to preserve his race, Aeneas sailed heavily over the Aegean. I will not let this change who I am, but it did. The passive lover turned a bloodthirsty killer as soon as he set foot on the right plot of land. With age and experience, he had learned the essential. When time is running out, it's best to ignore your conscience. It is easy to leave scorched earth behind you if you don't look back. There must be no change or loss and therefore preemptive death to all who might destroy us. It's a mistake, for we know that those who cheat fate 
will meet their fathers at the crossroads and walk away with bloodstained hands, mad for power, cursing God, and blaming the crime on some petty criminal's sad bid for survival. So loss will come, and we will die from one generation to the next. Landscapes won't be recognized, and humans will adapt, because that's what they're born to do. The world is no longer a chessboard. Surprise attacks are few. All can see the long view. Those who would preserve us will instead destroy us or die awaiting trial. Footnoted statesmen who answer fear with fear, whose solution is destruction of the people, who no longer adequately armed become internal spies, gathering evidence and rhetoric, hoping against hope for an appeal to a locality or figure on whom to pin the burden of responsibility. For mere riches, constant vigilance is too high a cost. It turns men into dogs. Odysseus left his gate unmanned for 20 years. How right or righteous must he have been to reclaim so easily his kingdom? A few justified murders and all sleep tight. While Aeneas, according to Geoffrey, began the British Empire, which in turn begat this kind of just war, faithless and fierce, through the flesh of others, providing a meaning to bring to a future in which we will not be. I have um, a lot of Christmas poems, strangely. <laughs> I think it's Partly because one of the poets I love dearly is Thomas Hardy, and he's a great writer of the really bizarre Christmas poem. You know this, yes. Um, where you're just wondering why anyone has any hope anymore, and then somehow they do. Um, so this is one of my Christmas poems, and I'm reading it partly because of the season. And this is called Mother Night, which is actually um, the first night of the Yule season, the 20th of December. Uh, Mother Night. Right before the darkness turned around and began to head in the other direction, I had a dream that you and I were decorating the Christmas tree, and I asked you, as we hung the aging trinkets, the crippled pinecone elf, the dry construction paper Santa, the several odd souvenirs from cultures, both Christian and unchristian, bought by my well-meaning parents in homage to that naive dream formerly known as the family of man. How much goodwill would it take on this cold midwinter's eve to renew the genuine warmth we used to feel towards one another? How many prayers of peace or mummer's carols? How many joyous songs or songs with solemn and saturnine themes? How many earnest petitions? After untangling the string of mini lights with uncustomary ease, we passed the neat lasso of green wire around the sticky sap and slightly prickly needles. With a confidence not unbecoming, you looked me in the eyes and said, for you, I guarantee that by the end of the season, sympathy and tender care will outreach judgment and critique. Two late century soldiers will meet in the desert, lay down their arms and embrace. Martin Luther, out walking at midnight, will be awestruck by the elegant stars peeking luminous through the German trees. Holly and ivy, ivy will grow up through the snow the burning bush, the drops of blood, and Father Christmas, astride a goat, Chris Kindle, Christ child, abolitionist. The jovial elf, slender pipe in hand, will rouse the Union soldiers to their grim task again. 
And then, in homage to these and other half-reasoned-out rituals, you and I will go hand-in-hand hand and hang a sprig of sage-colored mistletoe on the arc of the new bassinet. Delirious, I awoke from these words, got out of bed, and tiptoed to the living room to sneak a peek at the tree. There was thin silence and the smell of pine. In the uncanny snow light of enchantment, excuse me, in the uncanny snow light, the enchantment of the expectant scene was no less powerful than when, as a child, I had been entranced by the magical appearance of the festive packages under the tree. Time of the wheel, you will tide, the old solar tricks and the hopes of what the new year might hold in store. Dreams fulfilled in heavenly peace, or it struck me as a tractor trailer passed and shook the darkened house. Perhaps we're on the eve of some fortune less propitious. On this cheerless point of suspicion, the folk personages on the Christmas tree with their frozen smiles and arthritic postures seemed as they bobbed their heads up and down to agree with me. I'm now going to read um, a little bit from my new book, well, um, The Open Secret, which just came out from Flood Editions. Thanks to Devin Johnston and all his care. So there are people standing, but there are seats if you want to come forward. Make noise, that's fine with me. The, um, some of the work in this book I debuted in this very room, you know, four or five years ago. It takes me a long time. A foolish consistency. There is a fine reversal of desire that subtly turns to face the wake of years hard spent refining taste, reading this but never that, learning to discriminate against the prejudice of time at first, but later in adherence to its logic. Discrimination narrows options about which we are breathless in our youth when time is an endless, omniscient thing just beyond the ego, toxic mercury bolting from undisciplined, voracious hungers. When I was young, I courted the unfathomable permanence of books. Back then, before the internet, they were still difficult to find and seemed a miracle especially rare neglected books of rare neglected knowledge. The spiked up enthusiasms of the gung-ho are easily winded when shapeless. Life and death insights in the classroom vanish when peddling home with thoughts of food, a favorite show, a stiff tag scratching the skin of your infant neck. No idea could compete until I fell in love with work. The painful shaping of discrimination kept that love at bay. I was afraid to write a thing I did not mean and knew not what I meant. Underneath the ego's needs, an unsuspected truth awaits, which all unfixed I went towards through composition's problems. Discrimination told me poetry could solve them. A few long, wrong loves along the way have all but been forgotten, shed in the refinement of belief. A fine reversal of desire has taken shape, its genesis erased. I can't look back or forward. And though I'm still misled by love, 
It doesn't feel like love at all, but just a vague sensation of what was once not and now is. This one is called, Be Careful, The Poet's Skin is Like That of a Frog, which is bad news since the frogs are disappearing. There is a way in which I can be distracted from what matters, work and its allures, to make another's woes your business, to seem busy and feel the pleasant purpose of temporary urgencies. We walk away knowing what we will do and then forget to do it, Interpose, a couch on which to doze a while. Scenes of the once bright world drifting through the swirl of the lazy, overfed mind. I have no illusions regarding my accomplishments. Knowledge is not something I am hoping to find, but feels rather like the wave bumps beneath the blue plastic of a too soft waterbed. I feel awkward on it, unable to orient or get up. Denied hard surety, I am yet quite comfortable bobbing around atop half-fact like a giddy fool who speaks her secrets to the moon the moment no one is looking. Meanwhile, some are holding forth. Some seem to know what others will be impressed by. Some have conviction, at least in public. Others quietly move along, honoring the persuasions of their youth, lying to themselves. Some await discovery, growing anxious with the years. Others are afraid to tell you. The outside wants in. The inside would like to be left alone to parse out its prerogatives in soporific silence. The body provides all the form we need. Me, I'm falling asleep, not waiting for inspiration, but for food to court my interest and my mood to lift. I love the world in its wrongs, and I do not feel equipped to solve them. Others strut solutions. Go to it, I say, bored with the small-time secular pulpit. Simplicity will win my heart. Tell this to the balsa wood bug clinging to the screen door. His fragility is a fleeting beauty that portends destruction. Logics are demanded, but wait a while, listen and be quiet, and observe. Your mind has been come enamored of puzzling out structure. It does not become you, O oh poet. Who will now take the wind's dictation, atomize life into light, bring us the meaning and not the explanation? Build instead of footnote, footnote. history will take care of the rest. I've, I realize when I read that poem every time that my use of the waterbed as a metaphor is probably really dead, right? How many people have had that experience, you know? I remember it well in the 70s, you know, a few boyfriends, waterbed. All right. Um, okay, um, this one is called um, RIP, as in rest in peace. Which, you know, the first time most of us ever see that is like in a scary movie, right? Like in a, and it's supposed to be scary, R.I.P. Okay, R.I.P. <laughs> okay. 
Not forced to fall for hideous Phaon, nor to drift dreamlike from a Victorian cliff pursued by visions of slender limbs, peach-soft hair, dewy violets clustered in an unwilling lap. Not exiled on a distant island for writing smartly about love. Not called amoral, nor forgotten. Not murdered by a jealous lover, nor weakened from drink. Did not make an incision in the veins. Never murdered in a tavern at 29, nor thought mad. Released immediately from St. Luke's Hospital for Lunatics. Freed from Northampton General Lunatic Asylum. Cured of syphilis. Not mad, nor ruined by drink, nor shot in the head. The rope unknotted and fluidly slid from the lampposts. Sauntered away with a sideways crawl up the Champs-Élysées. Never sickened from drink nor drowned in the Gulf of Spezia. The heart kept tight, swam madly toward shore, disappeared down the glistening beach, skipping happily in the direction of England, staved off fever while fighting for Greeks, lived, wrote, erased the blood-stained pillowcase, married Fanny, moved to Finland, fathered several pink-skinned children, lay down for a rest in the Baltimore street, got up, confused about Spanish port, and went to the graveyard to sleep it off. Laudanum, opium, stroke, paralysis, aphasia, angels, threads of exotic Delacroix visions, but everything was put right when mom said, come on home, I want to care for you left the house and walked into the river until the water level, level covered the hairline, then shed the heavy Edwardian garments and broke into a bird-like breaststroke, exclaiming, how lovely to be free of the sickbed, never destroyed by drink, saying while removing the shrapnel from a soldier, recovered from the Spanish flu, returned to Poland, all debts forgiven by appreciative readers from the Congo, replaced the bottle of Lysol among the toxic rats enjoying a sauna under the sink, did not pull the trigger or push the chair out from under the revolution while screaming about the army of the arts, put on a jacket and sailed to Mexico, calmly came up on deck, folded the jacket over the rail, and then, arrested by a vision of spread-eagled sailors descending like angels through the turquoise sky, decided not to swallow the sea, freed from pain Whitney, walked right on through the psychiatric state hospital and out the other side, had no psychotic break while on acid in a land of dreamlike torch singers masquerading as Satanists, never touched the stuff. The dead liver tissue miraculously mended, smoker's cough silenced, cured by the sea air of old gray Gloucester, jumped into the beach taxi and drove down the beach, gesticulating gaily toward the setting sun, not undone, unloved, forgotten, nor filled with despair, nor punished for talking with angels, not unhappy, nor alone, not misrepresented, nor misunderstood, nor nauseous from drink or drugs or depression, loved, respected, and read, long-lived, healthy, and happy, celebrated by all in life before dying contented, in a comfortable bed. I teach poetry to undergraduates. And um, sometimes they would, you know, in a class in which we just do poems out of historical context, and it sometimes they'd be like, well, what's the story of the poet? And I'd be like, after a while, I was like, no, this is too depressing. You know, I can't. The Poetry Project has promoted, fostered, and inspired 
the reading and writing of contemporary poetry since 1966. Consider supporting us by checking out a reading, becoming a member, or donating at poetryproject.org.